A few years ago, I spent a little bit of time in the Jordanian desert. Can you imagine the people of God going through this wilderness land? And it had a strange beauty to it. One of the reasons the desert has a strange beauty to it is that God always speaks to us in the desert. He has a way of shaping his leaders in that quiet place where there's no distractions, just the whipping wind moving through the sand. 1,700 years before I was there, the desert fathers and mothers, they were called, were escaping out to the deserts in Egypt and Palestine and Syria to be able to hear God's voice clearly. Now, there were so many desert fathers and mothers who went out there to hear God's voice that they said it, it was like a city in the middle of the desert. And though they were going to have some silence and some solitude as monks or oftentimes nuns, they also created communities and monasteries and places where they would worship and work and eat in community. So they were living this life of solitude, prayer, fasting, and they were facing down the temptations of the world in a unique way. And being alone out there in the desert became like the ultimate display of devotion for them. And since the authorities weren't killing as many Christians at that point in the third and fourth centuries, instead of the martyrdom of blood, the one spiritual gift you get to use once, Instead, becoming a hermit in the desert, if you will, meant you were a living witness of a fully surrendered life to God. The holy men and women of Ireland learned from these men and women in the desert. They were also called desert fathers and mothers, even though they are in the lush green of Ireland and Scotland. I'm thinking about St. Kevin at Glendalough, who was born in 498. There were prophetic words that came from St. Patrick about St. Kevin, what he would do. And St. Kevin lands at this place, Glendalough, this, these two, this valley with these two beautiful lakes. And he's hiding away in a cave next to a lake, perfectly content to be by himself until a farmer and his sons come and say, please, holy man, will you teach us? Will you allow us to be with you and learn from you? And so St. Kevin actually sets up this monastic city, this little village where people could come and learn about who God was from Kevin and from God himself. They would make these pilgrimages, these trips to the valley to learn from him. During Lent, which is the season we're about to go into, I call it 40 days, although I think it's more days than that, prior to Easter, one time during Lent, he's out there in his cave, and an angel says, you gotta go spend time with these people. Sometimes even the hermits have to be called out to spend a little time with others. 
Frank Franz Kafka said this, the fathers of the church were not afraid to go out into the desert because they had a richness in their hearts. But we, with richness all around us, are afraid because the desert is actually in our hearts. So the desert fathers and mothers, these old-time saints, found great value in the posture of obscurity. When I was doing youth ministry 12 or plus more years ago, one of the things I ran across was this fear in students. This fear of being ordinary. And it seems that, in Chico at least, that there was this idea that if I am not the best at it, I'm just going to quit doing it. So then oftentimes, kids who were doing sports, if they weren't the absolute best, they would just quit. They would walk away from it. If they weren't the best at art, they would quit and they'd go away from it. If they weren't the best of the best of drama, they would go away from it or singing. It was this celebrity complex. Have you ever seen this, right? That unless I'm the very best, I've got to quit. Like when I was in the old days, I just played sports and sang in the choir and played in the band and it was fun. It was a fun thing you did and you didn't have to be the very best. And you didn't feel the pressure of like trying to figure out what your 15 minutes of fame was going to be. But I was shocked when I discovered that everyone was trying to find the thing that they could be the expert in so that they could get attention. And that's probably a common thing, not just for adolescents, but for all of us. So FOBO is what I'm seeing on the interwebs. The fear of being ordinary. The fear of being average. Coinophobia, the fear of being ordinary. It's a thing. Who knew? And I love this Taylor Swift quote. I'm intimidated by the fear of being average. One website described it this way. When you look back over your life or you try to put, down, put your life down on paper, you can see more of it now than ever before, and yet it seems somehow diminished, humble, almost quaint. So you begin scanning your life and looking for something interesting or beautiful. By all you see is, but all you see is ordinary people assembled in their tiny classrooms or workspaces, each of us moving around little steps like tokens on a game board. That, by the way, is the opposite of focused living, where we create a timeline, we help you create a timeline for your life, and you see where God has been moving all along, where there is significance even in the moments that were painful and, and really difficult, God was present teaching and shaping you. So instead of looking at your timeline, if you will, through this lens of, oh no, I can't see anything where I'm getting all sorts of accolades, you begin to see that all along God was working and he was the one that was giving you accolades. And he's crazy about you. That was an absolute commercial for Focus Living. But it's the opposite of this idea that ordinary could be a curse. Brene Brown would even point to those who are narcissistic and point to this fear. Take a look at this quote. When I look at narcissism through the vulnerability lens, I see the shame-based fear of being ordinary. 
I see the fear of never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed, to be lovable, or to belong, or to cultivate a sense of purpose. So here's the issue I want to boil down for you, a little thought bubble here. The issue becomes, if I'm not blank enough, I won't be seen and I won't be loved. Therefore, I've got to perform constantly, and you have felt this before, and you may be feeling that right now in your life. And yet, as we look at obscurity, obscurity and greatness are not at odds with one another. God can absolutely do great things. My guess is you never heard about St. Kevin before. But he did great things. Greatness was on his life. But not because he had his 15 minutes of fame. So, you, so what have we determined so far? You wouldn't be a good monk, probably, or a good nun. And the idea of obscurity feels like bland or normal or ordinary or beige if you're going to put a color to it. So what is obscurity? Let's stop. Let's define it real quick. Being unknown, inconspicuous, and unimportant to the world. To the world is the key word in that. But I'm adding, it's also being seen and known and loved by God. That's like God coming through his holy scriptures. Just like, I love that little image. So while anonymity, not being known, is what the world defines as obscurity, there is something so much more beautiful, so much more abiding in truth, that we are seen and known and loved by God regardless of what the world sees and knows, because we're never forgotten or overlooked by God at any time. Matthew 10 says, the hairs on our head are numbered. Why does he even care about that? Because he cares about me and you. He said he'll never leave us or forsake us in Deuteronomy 31. And he has this crazy, vast amount of thoughts about us. That's what Psalm 139 says. So we're continuing this journey about rhythms. And this morning we're looking at this idea of obscurity, the posture of obscurity and how Jesus modeled this through his life and how the disciplines of slowing silence, solitude, and Sabbath, four things that we've already talked about in this series, if you've been with us, they all reinforce this, this way of life. We're going to see once again that the, the world values notoriety, fame, attention. Jesus' approach is largely to roll underneath the radar. Largely not be seen, to love well, to change the world while staying out of the 24-hour news cycle. So, and I'm going to challenge you at the end to process your pain with Jesus and a few supportive friends before you seek the world's comfort from your quote-unquote Facebook friends. Ouch. All right. What are, what are people saying about obscurity? Well, I got a couple quotes here. First of all, Raoul Dahl who I absolutely love his writing, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, BFG. He says, obscurity is never a value. He's clearly trying to be known, right? Two emperors said something similar in Alexander the Great and Napoleon Bonaparte. They said this. Throw that slide up there for me. 
I would rather live a short life of glory than one, a long one of obscurity. Glory is fleeting, but obscurity is forever. Clearly, these are people who want to be known, and the world is saying, you need to be known and seen by everyone. But Mark Twain got it right. Obscurity and a competence, because he was a great writer, that is the life that is best worth living. Samuel Clemens, he takes on the name Mark Twain so that he can have his anonymity. He can stay obscure. So we're talking about Jesus being obscure, however, because Jesus is our model. He's the one that we're looking at for our unforced rhythms of grace, that we're wearing this light yoke and walking with him. And so Jesus leads this life of obscurity. Well, what do I mean by that? I love this quote. It's in a book called Embracing Obscurity, Becoming Nothing in Light of God's Everything. The author is anonymous. Of course, they are. Christ's obscurity, it reads, was as purposefully planned as equally glorifying to God. As his journey to fame and his fall from the public's favor. In other words, this was the plan all along, that Jesus would fly under the radar. We read in Matthew 12 that he's going, not going to shout from the rooftops, but he's going to be silently moving through the streets. It's even prophesied about him in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, about the fact that, spoiler alert, Jesus doesn't walk in with his hair flowing like a rock star. What does he look like? Well, it's prophesied that he, verse two, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. And he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So Jesus doesn't have this distinctive look. He just walks in, you're like, whoa, that's Jesus. You could tell. He's great. Jesus is born in a barn to a mother who was expecting before she was married. And she, he lives 30 years in complete obscurity except for one story about being 12 at the temple and he gets left behind. He is from such a backwoods town that even Nathaniel asks in John 1, what good thing could come of Nazareth? Nazareth. So what happens at the beginning of his Ministry speaks of this concept of obscurity. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there or your digital Bibles. Matthew 3. Now, mind you, Jesus is coming off of 30 years of being completely unknown. And here he is, Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, his cousin. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to... To be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So Jesus says, look, John, you got to trust me on this. We need to do this. This is important. John says, okay. Verse 16. So Jesus is dunked under the water. As soon as Jesus was baptized, verse 16, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. 
And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the first thing that happens in Jesus' ministry is he has a massive revelation of God's love for him and his identity that he's a loved son. This is all about installing and confirming, yes, Jesus, this is who you are. So hearing beloved, probably your kids or your wife or others doesn't, don't call you the beloved. Hello, beloved. But when you are being shown full blessing, full approval, for full affirmation, and this is before Jesus has done, done all the Messiah stuff. He hasn't done anything to earn this. It's not conditional on him being a rock star or performing to earn favor. And when Jesus hears this from God, he does the most amazing thing. He believes it. The truth is that we are loved before we do anything for God. And the problem we have is we don't believe it. Mr. Rogers told children for decades like me, you are special and unique. He got all kinds of flack in the last 20 years. You're helping raise a snowflake generation, they said. That's not what Mr. Rogers meant. How do I know that? Mr. Rogers set the record straight in a speech at Marquette University in 2001. He clarified what he was saying for all those years. He said this, quote, you don't ever have to do anything sensational in order to be loved to love or be loved. The real drama of life, that which matters most, is rarely center stage or in the spotlight. In fact, it has nothing to do with IQs and honors and the fancy outsides of life. You don't have to do anything sensational to love and be loved. But the world will tell you you do. And if you don't, you won't be enough. The goal of this life is not to catch everyone's eye, to be known, to be dramatic, glorious, or famous. Because God already notices you. His eye is caught by you. You take his breath away. You're full of his glory. You can't earn any more love from him. You already have it. These are the things that Jesus let sink deep into his soul. And then what does he do? While he's still sopping wet in his only set of clothes, walks into the dusty, dirty wilderness. Next verse, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, led by the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Don't you love how understated the Bible is? The tempter came to him, that would be the devil, and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is willing to be led by the Spirit into the desert. He fasts for 40 days. Why? Because he knows that he's loved. And he moves into a very obscure place where no one knows where he is. 
And the desert is where that identity, God uses it and sears your identity into deep into your soul like a hot iron. That the longer you are in the wilderness, the more God convinces you of who you are. Because I've always thought about the wilderness as being a place of weakness. Oh, see, he, Jesus was all weak. He wasn't eating food. And then all of a sudden, the devil comes up. He's an opportunist. He's not taking a day off. He's not taking a Sabbath. He shows up. Hey, Jesus, he's, you know, he's trying to get him while he's down. No. The desert, the Aramos, this is a place of strength for Jesus and for us. And that when we go and meet with God, we get stronger and are able to stand up under temptation. And that's what happens with Jesus. All three of Jesus' temptations were all identity related. Why? Because God just spoke the truth of his identity into him. Of course the enemy's going to go after that to steal it. Soon as you get your biggest victory, you better watch out because the next day the enemy's going to try to come after it and try to convince you that it wasn't enough or you're not enough or you're a fake or you're a fraud or you're an imposter or there's something wrong with you or somehow you're disqualified. It's like in the video games, for those of you who play video games, your character gets hurt and you got to like run off to the corner and like crouch down and all of a sudden you can see like the little meter go back up and then you're ready to go. Wilderness is like that. You're welcome, millennials. So this first temptation, if you're the son of God, man, there's so much I could say about this, but I need to condense it. This is a temptation targeting Jesus' identity. God has just clearly spoken that Jesus, at Jesus' baptism, that he's the loved son of God, and he's going, if you are the son of God, he always wants you to doubt what God has said and what you've already received. Go ahead and meet your needs apart from trusting God and asking him to meet your needs. Of course, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to test God like that. Next verse, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, that's not, it's also written, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Second time, if you're the son of God, it's an identity thing, right? You got to prove it. You got to work for it. You can't just rest in it. The devil's always going to try to get you to work for it and prove it instead of rest in who you are. And this is a temptation to get ahead of God. Just make a step on your own and ask God to bless the results. You ever do that? I have. Why not initiate instead of wait for God? Because those who wait on the Lord, he'll renew their strength. And when you wait on the Lord, you're actually trusting him more. Verse eight. Again, the devil looked at, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you. By the way, those all belong to him at this point. He, it, it, he actually could give them to Jesus. He said, if you'll bow and worship me, they're yours. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This temptation is to take the shortcut. You shouldn't wait to the end of time to like have all kingdoms underneath your rule. Just go and have it right now. I can give it to you right now. 
You ever tempted to take a shortcut? Not wait for what God has? Go ahead and create your own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And what are people going to think of you, Jesus, while you're walking around homeless? I could give you everything. Interesting thing about temptation, most temptation boils down to Satan offering us what we already have in Jesus Christ. What we've already been given, he gives us a steal of a price, a shortcut. And if we don't know who we really are, if we're not solid and set on this identity of who we are and what God's already promised to do for us and what he's given to us, we take the deal. Let me give you an illustration. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. One of the things I'm going to do on my sabbatical is read through the whole Chronicles start to finish. I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. And probably drink tea. It'll be great. So what happens? Edmund. Oh, God bless him. So Edmund gets to Narnia. And he meets the white witch, Jadis. Jadis, Jadis offers and tempts him with you. I'll make you a prince. Now, because he doesn't understand his true identity, the fact that he's already destined to be a king in Narnia, and because he wants to rule over his older brother to show him who's boss and his two sisters, he takes the bait. He's fooled into taking a much lesser blessing, and it ends up being a disaster where he's in jail at the white witch's castle. But after he's set free by Aslan, Aslan has this long conversation with Edmund. And though Lewis doesn't tell us what is said, I can imagine this is like solo time in the wilderness with Jesus for Edmund. Where Aslan is helping Edmund understand that he is actually a king of Narnia. And what he's called to. And what his identity really is. It's being built up one-on-one out there in the wilderness. So only after the desert, this place of obscurity, Jesus is ready to launch into ministry. And then we see him going from town to town and doing all the things that you remember reading about from the Bible that he did. So what's the flow? First of all, you receive a revelation of who you are, your identity. Secondly, You retreat to a solitary, obscure place, in this case, the desert, where that belovedness begins to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into your soul. It actually makes you stronger and stronger and stronger and ready to handle whatever temptation or whatever challenges or whatever ministry, the third thing that you're going to walk into. Identity, the place of the desert, and then your kingdom work. So, Jesus is walking differently. You study other Greco-Roman gods and they try to dress up like humans, but they oftentimes get caught because they always walk with a certain stately way. And that's what gives them away if you've studied mythology. Jesus, the opposite. Jesus like walks into a crowd. They're like, what happened to Jesus? He just completely disappears. Why? Because it's not about being known. It's about being loved and then walking in that belovedness. So what's going on with Jesus' obscurity? Well, his family doesn't even really know what he's doing. And they're saying, hey, you need to, we need to reel it in in Matthew 12. 
He keeps telling people who get healed, don't tell anyone. You ever see that before? Especially when I asked you to read Mark a couple months ago, if you did that. Like, it's all over the place. Like, why is Jesus trying to keep himself a secret? If you watch The Chosen, Peter is so frustrated in season one. He's like, do we get to tell people yet? Do we get to tell people yet, Jesus? Jesus understands there's a timeline, and it's not about standing on a stage. It's about his belovedness and walking in that, walking in his calling. So besides Jesus, every single, it seems like every single leader spends time in the desert. You get Moses for 40 years hanging out with sheep. You get David growing up with sheep. You got, well, then he, he's on the run. He's in the wilderness for seven years. You get Paul who comes to Christ and he's going to be a dynamo, but he goes and he's at least three years just learning and studying in the wilderness. And we have an obscurity to us as well. Verses like this, 1 Chronicles 29 verse uh, 15. We are here only for a moment. Visitors and strangers in the land of our ancestors were before us on the, on our days on earth are like a passing shadow gone too soon without a trace. If you asked me very many questions about my great-grandfather, I could probably answer three. He's gone. But did he do great things? I don't know. He does. Jesus does. A.J. Swoboda says this. There is a very healthy place for obscurity in the Christian walk. It is there in obscurity, not in the lights, that our character is most formed. We need obscurity. Jesus lived in obscurity for nearly 30 years before entering public ministry. So what are the ways that we can actually walk in this posture of obscurity? Because if you're like me, I have never heard a message on this before. I've never studied it before. This is just Jesus and me. We're walking this out, studying like crazy. I'm going to tell you things you already know, but you need to be reminded. So how are we going to practice this? Four S's. Slowing, silence, solitude, Sabbath. Telling you the same thing over and over so that you finally will get it so that I can get it. When we do these things, we actually begin walking in this posture. They are one and the same. Chris, who came up front, did not know I was going to share this verse. I'm sharing the same verse that he did from Psalm 1. Is that a coincidence? No. It's called Holy Spirit coordination. Psalm 1 which is about the beauty of obscurity in the life of faith. The fact that we would be likened to a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. So this tree is planted near streams of water. Near, not in. And my nerdy friends would call this the riparian buffer. It's the area near a waterway where you've got space to put your roots down. It's not right on the edge because oftentimes then the water will erode away. And you've seen that out here at the creek where the, the tree just starts 
and then all of a sudden it's in the creek. There's space. There's a needed space for us, and that space I will call Sabbath, to take time to rest. It provides the space for us to draw on this life source and grow, and this space is not a busy space. It's not a freeway. It's not a sidewalk. It's next to a river. Once again, Swoboda, A.J. Swoboda from his book, Subversive Sabbath, says this, Sabbath gives space to enter into obscurity for the purpose of Christian maturity with much-needed, renewed vigor. He goes on to say this, We desperately need obscurity, but our modern world is intent on keeping us from silence and solitude. Scheming against the moments of quietness and prayer. Silence is scary. Obscurity is difficult. Having a day of rest that may include silence can feel like a very long day. Can you imagine before the light bulb, and I'm thinking about ancient times in Jesus' day, you would have just a little oil lamp. And when it got dark, you went to bed. You didn't have your electronics. You didn't have light bulbs. Oh, and by the way, if you thought, well, I'm just going to burn a lamp all the time. What I read was that the estimate was that 15 minutes of light provided by an oil lamp would have cost an entire day's wages. You're not burning your oil much. I mean, unless you're independently wealthy. So normal people would be in bed when it got dark, would get up when it got early, average about 11 hours of sleep at night. Can you imagine? Now you can't. What would those people do with all of that time when they weren't sleeping? Because if you're like me, I don't usually sleep for 11 hours. You might lay awake thinking, praying, pondering, thinking about your life, having silence and solitude in an obscure place letting Jesus speak to you. And yet in our culture, we've just filled up the time and the space with light and noise. Swoboda says this. His book is a good read, by the way. We have developed an allergy to silence and obscurity. We have created within ourselves such a need to do and accomplish and make that effectiveness becomes the rudder of our entire existence. Silence terrifies us. After having been silent, we have nothing we can tell people we have done. My silent times are like draining a lake. Have you ever studied this on the internet? Just type in draining the lake, right? So let me show you some pictures of what you find when you drain a lake. All sorts of wonderful and terrible things. And when I'm quiet, it's like I drain the lake of my soul and I find all the stuff that's at the bottom. It's a little disturbing. It's maybe why you don't want to be silent because you'll have to look at that, well, I don't know, that old wagon or the tombstone or the old car or something worse. But I want to give God space. And it's his kindness that leads me to changing my mind to repentance. And he shows me, do we want to deal with 
the car at the bottom of the lake? I think it could be time, Andrew. So how do we apply this? This feels pretty subjective. Jeff Bethke says this. I think there's a gift and beauty and a desperate need of the desert, of the place of wandering, alone, the place where God does his best work, where he meets you most intimately, where he isn't at fault for the curse, but where he walks with you through it. I think one of the worst parts of being so overconnected in our society with the world wide web in our pocket at all times and all of the friends we have that are probably not our friends is we don't give Jesus the space to speak into things before we let the whole world speak in. We have a hard time hearing Jesus in our trauma and the really painful things because we let everybody else speak in first. So we blog about it or post about it and we get all sorts of nice little, I'm so sorry. It's not bad. But it doesn't give Jesus much space to speak in. I just did some searching this week about grief and social media. There's some fascinating articles out there on the internet. I saw this learning how to show up for a grieving person and go beyond I'm sorry. And there's a little, there's a little website there. I think it's called talkaboutgrief.org. Highly recommend you look at something like that to try to figure out how a response, I'm so sorry, on Facebook is not enough to love one another well. And frankly, when I am struggling with my most painful things, I need to process with Jesus and my close friend most and first. And then I may put something out there. But I believe that we squeeze Jesus out of the equation by just getting enough empathy or whatever you call it, sympathy maybe. Or go, okay, I think I can, I think I can get through tomorrow instead of really dealing with what's, with what's going on. I'm not saying social media is evil. I'm not saying you should all get off of there right now. I'm not saying that it's not sometimes a, a place where you could get deep uh, compassion from others. I'm saying that if we don't ask Jesus to speak in first, he's a gentleman, he won't force his way in. And then the noise of all the voices will drown his, his out. So what do we need? Well, in this posture of obscurity, I want to remind you about a weekly rhythm that I threw out there a couple weeks ago. And that is having a one-hour conversation with one friend once a week that you trust. About stuff that matters, by the way. Not just about fantasy football or the weather. But stuff that you're processing. The things that are important in your soul. My Celtic Christian friends call this the Anamkara, the soul friend who comes alongside. Who you feel safe to bear your soul with in a place of obscurity. So obscurity includes real conversations with fellow travelers who you can let your soul come out and show itself. So 
Summing up, how do you live in a place of a posture of obscurity? This isn't about somehow putting yourself down. This isn't about the fact that we're saying that you can't walk in greatness. And God wants us to do great things. That means that we're not about self-promotion and platitudes. We're about understanding who we are as the beloved and walking that out. And being content to not be famous for it. So how do you do this? Moments of silence in the presence of God when you're driving or showering or waking. Daily time with God, even if it's five minutes. Taking that 10 minutes of silence that I've challenged you to take with God. It's a long time. 10 minutes is a long time to be silent and listen. But it's such a beautiful practice of listening to him first before the world. And Sabbath, which we talked about last week, which we'll continue to talk about. Taking a 24-hour period and ceasing from work and delighting in God and the things that God's given you. When you do those things, you are entering into this posture of obscurity that says it's not about being known, it's about being loved. What if the church became the very best place to learn how to rest? The last 50 years, well, I'm only 51, so I can only tell you about the last 40-something of them. The church isn't a very restful place. It's been a place where we're really good at filling up your schedule with all sorts of things. I keep you real busy. Maybe if we keep you busy, you won't be sinning out there. Just hearing the church lady in my head. Are you hearing her too? Special. What if we changed all that? What if it was more about your relationships with other fellow travelers walking in obscurity, all the while seeing God do great things? Because every time I see God move in little ways and big ways, I'm astonished by his greatness. It's not about me. I sometimes get it right and I sometimes get it wrong. So, I just want to challenge you, will you start walking into these things, this postures? Is it going to happen overnight? Nope. You're going to get right every time? Nope. But is it a good target to shoot for? Yeah. And do you feel the peace on it? Because I do. Why don't you stand? As we close, um, we have a verse that I know that we've been working through in boot camp. And I want to quote it just as a congregation before we leave. And it's Joshua 1.8 from the NIV. So if the crew in the back can pull that up for me, it's probably in a different spot, so they got to find it. But uh, let me pray first. Jesus, pray and thank you for the fact that you set the pace. You show us what it looks like to live life to the fullest and to not be in a hurry. And so we choose to do life your way, to trust you, that we don't have to be known, that as long as you love us and we know that, 
choose to step in that place. So I bless you, Jesus. Pray that you'd help us to step into this place of obscurity with grace in Jesus' name. Well, I am going to pull up this verse because it sounds like it disappeared off of our computer back there. And of course, I've got it pulled up to the Hebrew, which is not helpful for any of us, including myself. <laughs> Strange things. I just, I think this is important. Joshua 1.8 in the NIV reads this way. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. May you walk from this place with great peace. May you walk from this place experiencing the presence of your God. May you walk from this place feeling like you got set free from having to live up to the world's standards of being a big deal at all times. And may you walk from this place finding your friend who will spend one hour with you this week and have a real conversation in Jesus' name. Prayer team, come on down. If you have a prayer need, we would love to pray for you. Otherwise, it will be my pleasure to see you next week.